0: We're continuing in a study that we started last week on First Corinthians, where we're digging into uh, just the opening chapters of this verse, uh, 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 the opening chapters of this book, where Paul is is uh, unfolding for this church that has a lot of things coming at him in a lot of different directions. What it is that holds them together, and what it is that unifies them. And I have asked my friend Alicia to read the text this morning that we're going to be uh, unpacking. Uh, and so, where are you? There you are. So this is 1 Corinthians 1, 18 through 2, 5. Amen, thank you. Let me pray one more time. Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what it is that you're showing us through your word and through the, uh, the context of, of the people in Corinth and what they were dealing with and how your servant Paul is leading them and lead us in the same way. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen, amen. Okay, so we started last week talking about Corinth and talking about the context of this city and comparing it a lot to Nashville, how it's a city where there's a lot of art and there's a lot of attraction to things that are attractive and a lot of value that's put on, on, on position and youth and popularity and eloquence. And, and so we're, we're digging into that further and Paul's digging into that further because there's this young church, this church made up of young believers who are gathering together in a desire and an attempt and before the Lord trying to be faithful to him and worshiping him and they have all these voices coming at them saying, yeah but, but this is really where life is found and this is really where your value comes from and this is really what makes you lovable and lovely and just being a part of Corinth and a citizen in this city is is, is boastworthy enough for you and so they have this constantly coming at them it's so much like a city like this that they're living in and so Paul is contending and beginning in these chapters to be talking about where does truth come from? Where does wisdom come from? The things that you can cling to and hold to and believe, the things that will guide you in the right way, where does that come from? Because everybody in that city is saying, I know the answer to that, I know the answer to that, and all the answers are different. And what Paul is saying he's saying, there's only one place, there's only one place where you can find the answer to the question of what gives your life meaning and purpose and value, and that is, who are you in relation to the one who made you? And he's getting down into the nitty-gritty of how you begin to even approach answering that question, and he's saying, the answer is found in the story and the truth of a cross, which at the time would have been a very offensive thing. We've made crosses beautiful. But at that time, it was an executioner's tool. It was a grotesque image of somebody dying in a way to where Roman law said no Roman citizen is permitted to die this way no matter how bad they've been. This is reserved for non-Roman citizens only. It's that intense. So this is where Paul is, and this is where he's trying to engage these people and to proclaim the truth of the gospel. In a moment, not very long from now, I am going to be installed as assistant pastor at Midtown Fellowship, as the pastor who's been called to 12 South. This language that we use in our government that I'm being installed, it makes me feel a little bit like a dishwasher. <laughs> but I'm gonna be installed in a little bit, but part of the, uh, the The thing about a day like this is I can't think about what's happening right now without it connecting to a bigger story of the Lord bringing people into my life and bringing friends in and taking friends away and leading us to this city and then to that city and then to this school and bringing children and just looking at the Lord's path that he's had us on. Today is one of those days where I'm building an Ebenezer, or an Ebenezer is being built for me in the Lord's providence. And you might think that on a day like this that my heart would be inclined to boast and to think, that's right, today's a day where we celebrate my accomplishments. And it's just not that way for me. It's a different experience. It's a different place where my heart goes on a day like this because this is the kind of day where I remember Words don't have power in themselves. And I make my living in large part in words. And if the Lord doesn't work through words, my words, your words, if the Lord doesn't work through circumstances, if the Lord doesn't work, then I could spend a life speaking words that would be completely meaningless and have no power at all. In Corinth, these were people who loved words. They loved eloquence. If you were a gifted speaker, people would listen to what you had to say because of your rhetorical skill, regardless of the content of your words. And these gifted orators would be elevated to these places where people would gather around them. And even in the opening verses last week that we talked about, the church is saying they're they're identifying themselves with their favorite speakers, with their favorite orators. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And And they're identifying themselves in this way. And Paul is now contending for us to say, there is no power in the words of a man. There's no power there and it sounds like wisdom, and the masses are embracing it as wisdom, but that doesn't make it wisdom that can change your life. You know, a million voices can say to you, this is true, this is beautiful, this is wonderful, and it doesn't make it so. For example, in the 80s, without a hint of irony, I wore parachute pants. (laughs) I accepted that it was a good move for me to wear pants that could melt and that I could tie bandanas just below the knee and that would help what I was doing. It doesn't make it right. It doesn't make it wise. It doesn't make it beautiful. And yet there we all were, right? Tattoos might be the same way in this era. I have a friend who said, I think we're gonna get 20 years down the road and the tattoo fad might be a little bit like we all sewed fanny packs to our bodies, Um, which I think is hilarious. (laughs) Anyway, so you have this city that prizes the gifted speakers, and the church is trying to understand truth in this flurry of spoken word and oratory skill. And Paul is saying, here's where wisdom is. Wisdom is in the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. Wisdom is in the power of God to transform your life, the transformational power of the gospel at work in you. You're not going to find this anywhere else. And then he adds this caveat. And by the way, it's foolish. It's foolishness to the ears of people who don't believe. And he's not talking about preaching the gospel as foolishness. He's saying the content of the gospel is foolishness to people who don't believe. And if you think about it, it absolutely is. Some of the things that you would have to profess faith in to call yourself a Christian. Let's just name a few. Virgin birth. We're starting there. My hope is in a Savior who was born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. That defies a lot of laws of physiology right there. And that while he was on this earth, he did things like turn water into wine, and good wine, and he multiplied loaves and fishes, and he seemed to apparate (laughs) at times, Uh, and uh, when he wasn't doing that, he was at times walking on water, and being visited by spirits of minor celebrities in the old testament and that 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 he died and that he was buried and then 3 days later he wasn't dead anymore he had risen and then he spent 40 days in this glorified risen body with his disciples talking about the kingdom of his father before ascending into heaven in front of a lot of people that's the message That's what we're saying to people? Yeah, that's what I believe. That's what I believe. Paul is saying in Corinth, in this world where philosophy rules and where oratory skill rules, where empiricism is prized and valued, you're gonna sound like an idiot to people talking about this. Because they're saying that doesn't make sense of the world in which we live in. But Paul's point is It's not purely a world that we know through empiricism. It's not purely a world that we know through logical deduction. It's one thing to say, look, I don't accept Christianity because I cannot accept a virgin birth. But if that's what you're saying then what you're saying is the only world that I can accept is one that obeys the laws of physiology that are in front of me that we all abide by, where the Christian would say, yes, but we acknowledge that there is an author to the laws of physiology who has authority over them and was doing something greater for the purpose of redeeming us, of giving one who would die in my place for my sins and rise to life and live for me and give me his righteousness, and take my sin upon himself, that Christ would do this. And he says it's foolishness to people. It's foolishness to people, because they don't understand, they can't understand, unless the Lord opens their eyes and their hearts. And yet at the same time, he's painting this picture in Corinth of these people who are kind of pooling their ignorance together and they're talking about philosophies and ideas and things that interest them and congratulating each other and celebrating the advancements that they're making in their, in their thought and yet God isn't a part of it. God isn't a part of that. God isn't a part of the conversation nor are who they are in relationship to the one who made them. He's not in this picture anymore. And Paul is contending for them I read uh, a sermon this week by a guy named Paul Tripp who um, makes this statement. You know, in this text, if you saw it go by, Paul um, singles out Jews and Greeks, and he's using them as examples, and he's using them as cultural examples in Corinth, and he's saying these, these are two kinds of schools of thought. He's not... He's not saying, I really like one and I really don't like the other one. He's using them as examples in kind of the way that they think and distinguishing them from, the, from each other. And, and Paul Tripp writes this. He, he describes it this way. He says, Paul uses the Jews and the Greeks as case studies for approaches to wisdom that are defective. So the Jews, they stand for the empiricists. These are the people who say, show it to me. Let me experience it. Let me bring it into my laboratory so I can measure it and quantify it and touch it and taste it and smell it. And if I can do that, I'll believe The empiricist who takes the scientific hypothesis as his scripture will never arrive at the gospel. Now, this doesn't mean that these people don't have any knowledge. It doesn't mean that they don't discover things that are true about the universe. It means the ultimate truth of truth that that the cross presents they will never get through the road of empiricism. And then he goes on to say this about the Greeks. He says, the second group is the Greeks, the philosophers. And they say, if you can give it to me in a logical syllogism, that is without logical break, and if I can analyze it intellectually, and if the argument is consistent, then I will believe it. And so by the exercise of consistent logic, I filter what I think is true or false. And you won't, Tripp says, by that philosophical, analytical, intellectual pursuit, arrive at the truths of the gospel. It doesn't work, and here's why. Here's his reason. I was never hardwired to depend on my own wisdom as my sole basis for knowing I was created to be dependent upon revelation. That's a big idea. That I'm not wired to figure out everything that there is to know about the universe on my own or with my buddies. That I need it revealed to me because that's the posture I'm in. I'm the created being. I'm not the creator. I'm not the omniscient one, I'm the one who doesn't know a whole lot of things and I need that revealed to me. And the problem isn't that logic is unhelpful or untrustworthy, it's just that it's not sufficient, your own. Your own mind is not sufficient to comprehend the eternal creator of everything that ever was or shall be or your place in relationship to him. You need the power of the Lord to reveal this to you. You need him to reveal this to you. You need the power of the revelation of the gospel of Jesus Christ to understand the one that you were made to know and love forever. I was talking to my friend uh, and one of the pastors here, Dave Burden, this morning uh, before the service, and we talked about, because I think we're both kind of going down similar roads right now, and I'll bet if I ask for a show of hands, there would be some who would say, um, I'm kind of glazed over right now in the philosophy conversation. And it's hard because the whole point of what Paul is saying in this text is it doesn't have to be that hard for you. You don't have to drill down eight layers deep into philosophy, and that's kind of what we're doing to explain what's happening in this text. So I want to pull back from it now and talk in very simple terms about the power of the gospel at work in the lives of the believers. You know what it is in this town? To be hungry for some kind of anchor. Something that says, all right, I'm doing okay, I'm doing okay, I'm growing, I'm learning. I'm, I'm learning. I need to listen to the right words or the right music or be at the right places or eat at the right restaurants or read the right books or whatever it is that we're looking to all these things and we know, we know eventually that these are not the things that really anchor us in truth, that God alone is the one who has the power to do this and we so need that. So what does it look like in a world full of philosophers and ideas and creative expression which are all good and all have their place to engage with the power of the gospel. What does it look like in my life? The question that we have to ask is, when you think about your own life, what needs to change in you? What needs to be broken in you? We sang that song this morning, Lord, break my heart. Break my heart when you're not enough. Break my heart. Do you even know how to answer that? What do you need changed in you? As you think about that, I'm gonna tell you a story to end this message. And it's a story that I think paints an amazing picture of what we need, what the power of the gospel at work in our lives looks like. My wife and I went to a church in St. Louis uh, when, we were, when I was in seminary, and our first Sunday there, we noticed in the bulletin, there was a section of the service called The, prayers of, or the Praises of the People, is what it was called, right? The Praises of the People. And... Uh, you know, never seen that before in a bulletin, didn't know what that was gonna be. We sang some songs. And then it came time for the praises of the people, and it was an open mic where anybody in the room could come up to the microphone. It was a podium, a pulpit kind of thing, and could talk about what the Lord was teaching them and doing in their lives. Would you wanna do that? There were lots, every week there were takers for this. But that first week, people got up and they talked about different things and, you know, I saw this beautiful sunset and it reminded me of the Lord's glory and these different things. And then, and then as it was kind of getting to that awkward point of maybe we're done, from the back of the room, this really kind of small framed, sort of nerdy looking man in his, probably his late 30s, early 40s, kind of makes his way, sort of shuffles up to the podium and gets up there and he kind of is arranging things on here, kind of looking down and he sheepishly looks up and he says, Um, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and his mercies never come to an end. The other night this week, my family and I were at the dinner table, my wife and my daughter and and I, and um, I asked my daughter to pass the bowl of peas, and she did. And somewhere in in the handoff, the bowl of peas fell on the table, and they went everywhere. They went on the table and on the floor and on my chair and my lap. And he said, you know, those of you who know me, you know that if something like that happens, that can kind of be the beginning of a really bad evening, not not just for me, but for for everybody around me. Just... And he said, and I, I looked at the peas... And I looked at my daughter who's looking at me wondering what I'm about to do and nothing happened. And we cleaned up the peas and we finished our dinner and the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases and His mercies never come to an end. Pray with me. Father, for this man to have a revelation of himself to know that spilled peas is a catalyst for relational destruction is something that only comes from you. You give us eyes to see that kind of thing. We don't want to see it. We don't look for it. We excuse those things away, and yet the power of the gospel at work in the heart of this broken, feeble man was so beautifully on display that you were doing something in him, not just around him, not just teaching him things, not just strengthening his mind, but you were transforming his life. And that's the power of the gospel at work. And Father, I pray That for us in this room, that you would give us eyes to see and a desire to see, not just the catalysts like the spilled peas or the words spoken to us in the wrong place at the wrong time or whatever it is that sets us off, but that you would help us to see layers beneath that, why it sets us off. And that you would help us to understand that even in the act of seeing that and having our heart broken, that it is mercy upon mercy upon mercy from you. That you are doing a work inside of us, not just around us, but in us. Transform us by the power of the gospel. And make our wisdom, wisdom that rests in the joy and the wonder of knowing you. It's in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen.